I've never invested on the basis that I know for certain what's going to happen in the next 12 months. Those are the words of Fidelity's Global Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey. And that is precisely why we are doing things differently for our 2024 outlook. More than ever, what lies ahead over the next 12 months is uncertain. Rising geopolitical tensions, more elections than at any point in recent history, and regime change of another type in markets. Listen on to hear Fidelity's heads of investment debate how they would respond to the different scenarios the team has developed for the year ahead. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. Well, with me today are Steve Ellis, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, Anna Stubnitska, Global Macroeconomist, and dialing in from Singapore, Marty Dropkin, Head of Equities for Asia Pacific. Thank you all for joining me. Hi, Hi Richard. Richard. Now, before we start talking about the year to come, 2023 has been memorable, that's how I put it. What's the one thing you would have played differently over the past 12 months? That's our icebreaker. Steve, let me start with you. Uh, right, well, I think um, the, the recognition that... Um, you know, this was this was supposed to be a year which central banks were hiking rates aggressively to tame inflation pressures. What I think I got wrong, and many people in the market got wrong, was the lack of appreciation of the kind of fiscal irresponsibility in the U.S. and, and beyond. In that, you know, running a federal deficit at eight and a half percent of GDP at such a you know stage in the cycle where the labor markets were tight and inflation pressures were evident, that I can think has wrong-footed us in the duration call. This is supposed to be a year where we were heading towards recession, but that recession has been delayed by the onset of fiscal uh, expansionary policy. So as, as the authorities with one hand were taking away, they were giving incredibly generously with the other one. So they were undoing that work. And I think that the upshot of that has been very tight monetary policy in the US. The central bank, the Fed, for example, have had to offset and over-tighten. Um, and you've had very loose fiscal policy, which means you know textbook dollar strength. But I think it's been difficult to actually, you know, call the cycle right and therefore get their duration call right. This should have been a good year for bonds, but because core yields are moving higher, it actually put pressure on all the whole asset classes, probably with the exception of high yield, which had a decent year. And again, has kind of, you know, confounded all, all the, the skeptics. Right. Okay. Marcy, what about you? We're, we're almost at the end of 2023. As you look back on, uh, on the past year, what would you have done differently? I think what we missed and what many missed in the market was the dominance of the U.S. and the continued uh, potential for earnings growth. We've seen that tip over a little bit in the recent weeks, but uh, but throughout 2023, it was rather persistent. And, and I think, you know, that those seven stocks that drove so much of the S&P growth um, throughout the year, that just continued to perform. And, and I think the expectations were that that probably wouldn't do as much of, uh, but there was a lot of persistence there. Uh, and that would have been a very um, uh, sensible um, <laughs> observation to have made. It couldn't go on forever, but it certainly has throughout, um, throughout most of this year. Now, Anna, you, you escape this tricky question um, because thinking of the year to come, um, I've mentioned the uncertainty. We've got um, a lot of known unknowns. These are elections where we don't yet know the outcome, most significantly in the US, and unusually complex economic conditions. And as always, we've got unknown unknowns, things that just pop up unexpectedly. So, in order to cope with all of that in the year to come, um, you and the investment team have developed four possible scenarios. 
and assigned a probability to each one with the idea that investors should keep them at hand to navigate whatever 2024 throws at us. So all of that given, can you take us through what is now Fidelity's base case scenario, the one that you think is most likely to happen, and that is a cyclical recession, a common or garden recession, if you like. So what does that mean and why do you think it will happen? A cyclical recession is uh, when we do start seeing growth damage from uh, the tightening in monetary policy that we have seen over the past few months. We continue to believe that uh, the monetary policy transmission channel is delayed, not broken. So we will start seeing that growth damage coming through. So we expect the developed countries to go into a moderate recession. We expect inflation to remain sticky somewhat through the year and then to start coming down more sustainably towards targets. Uh, and we expect the central banks to start reacting to this growth damage and to start uh, cutting rates at some point through the year. So growth slows and turns negative, inflation finally starts to come down, and central banks react um, by, by cutting rates. And what probability do you give that outcome? 60%. So 60%. Uh, and also, I should say, a, a return to growth at the end of 2024, or perhaps the year following. Is that right? That's right. Once we see uh, two or three quarters of uh, negative growth uh, and the central banks react by loosening financial conditions, uh, growth should return indeed. So that, that is something that we would expect uh, towards the end of 24. Great. Thank you very much, Anna. Now, Steve, that's the base case. That's um, with a 60%, as we heard, probability. That's what um, uh, you and the rest of the investment team have given um, uh, for this, uh, this outcome for 2024. A lot going on there, though. How do you approach it as a fixed income investor? Well, as Anna was saying, you know, if, if this is a, a garden variety type of recession, a mild recession, um, there will be some demand destruction from the impact of higher rates, and that's going to feed through. But I think in the short term, this is an environment for fixed income where you probably want to be positioned more at the front end of the curve because it means that central banks are not going to be so aggressive. At some stage towards the end of the year, they probably could cut interest rates. I'll talk about that in a bit. But um, you don't have to push out the curve you know, to, to get some decent uh, yield these days. So you can you know, sit in the front end, have some you know, go up in quality, have some decent exposure to credit and so on. Um, but it's, it's more about looking into the front end of the curve and also perhaps having some inflation-linked bonds in, in the portfolio as well. I think as you go through the year and, you know, central banks do have the ability and willingness to cut interest rates. And by the way, you know, they can cut interest rates pretty fast after that lost rate hike. It's normally between three and six months. So let's not rule it out. I think as you go towards the second half of the year, this could be an environment where you perhaps want to push out and have some duration risk. But again, you, you know, I think you need to stay up in quality here in a recession because, now, some parts of high yield are not priced, you know, in credit spreads are not priced for recession, whereas go up in quality, have investment grade exposure, then it gives you that protection with it and you get that yield. Okay. And Marcy, for equities, how would you position? Probably we want to look for in that scenario that Anna just said is where stocks are a little bit cheaper. And, you know, so if I think back to what I said I missed at the beginning, which is where, you know, U.S. persistence, I think we would start to see some earnings reductions across the U.S., and with valuations pretty high in the U.S. as they are versus historical standards, I think we probably want to avoid um, the broader U.S. markets and look towards cheaper markets uh, like Europe, like Japan, um, where valuations do reflect uh, a little bit more 
conservative uh, views in the market right now and provide a bit more upside. Okay. And as Steve was saying, this isn't static. You know, this is our base case um, at the moment, but we expect that all sorts of things could change as the months unfold. How would you expect your position to change um, throughout the year? Yeah, I mean, rate cuts, uh, similar to what Steve said, uh, should provide an opportunity to go longer duration, not just in fixed income, but in equities as well. And so, you know, one of the things we would look for is technology is a longer duration sector. And so if, if that sector were to sell off, if we started to see earnings bottom out a little bit, that would be a great opportunity to relook at, you know, the, that, that, that longer duration portion of the market and technology is the perfect example of that. A question for all of you, actually, which is, um, what are the signals that you're watching for that confirm to you, yes, we're in this particular scenario, um, or hang on a minute, things are beginning to change and we need to start um, adapting. So what's the most important signal for you, Anna? For this particular scenario, I would say the labor market. The labor market remains very strong across the board, but once it starts weakening, it will tell us that we are probably moving towards a, a, a moderate recession. And Steve, what, what are you keeping your eyes on? I'm pretty old school, Richard. I still look at the yield curve. So I think uh, when the yield curve starts to steepen pretty aggressively, that's a sign that we're heading or already in recession. But, you know, you look at some of the anecdotal data as well in the US and beyond. You're seeing that, you know, the, the micro data, it could be things like auto delinquencies and so on. They're be really showing some signs of stress here. It's amazing that you know, when you see the GDP numbers, the output numbers are actually holding up because under the surface, the consumer is really buckling here. Um, so I think they're the kind of things you want to do. But again, all, go, all goes back to the yield curve. I think that, that's the best sign. And Marcy, when the facts change, presumably you change your mind as well. Um, so what, what are the indicators that um, are most important to you? I think Steve just hit it on the hit the nail on the head just at the end of what he said. It's about the consumer, I think. And if and if you think about the U.S., where you know savings are starting to deplete, um, yet spending continues to hold up, I, I would look for that to tick over a little bit, and and that would be a good sign that we're entering in you know, this cyclical recession that Anna, Anna mentioned earlier. And Steve's already given us a few ideas of the things where, where you'd be positioned for, for that. Um, but what are the interesting plays for, for you, Marty? Um, and then coming back to you, um, Steve, what would you be avoiding? So I'll give you a little heads up on that one. But um, uh, so first of all, Marty, where, where would you be putting your bets? Yeah, again, I think look for markets that are a little bit cheaper that have already priced in some of these dynamics and and arguably maybe maybe some of a cyclical recession is being priced in. I know it's being discussed a lot as a narrative, whether whether it's actually embedded in markets yet is is yet to be seen. But uh, Japan and is is a great market for this if I think internationally, you know, we're still seeing valuations at at a reasonable level. Um, we're seeing a long-term shift in in corporate governance, and so I think Japan is. You know, we, we already are uh, pretty positive on Japan, but I would keep upping upping my allocation there. Europe, you know, there's pretty there's a lot of skepticism towards Europe, and uh, I think European valuations are at a level now where we should start to see an upswing. And particularly if we see earnings in the U.S. tick down, I think that could highlight some opportunities in Europe. So that's that's probably the two areas that I would position mostly in. If I think about sectors, um, you know, if we start to enter a recession, you'd look for those bond-like proxies, utilities, consumer staples, uh, those type of, you know, more conservative sectors with more dependable cash flow um, would be where I would start to allocate. You, you'd want to avoid the, the consumer discretionary and, and you know, those more cyclical type sectors. Um, uh, we haven't talked about energy yet, which we may, but, you know, oil, oil prices are something to keep a close eye on as well. 
Okay, jolly good. And Steve, what would you avoid? So I think it's very much like Marty said. I think it's all about the consumer, right? So you want to, in credit markets, you want to avoid sort of highly levered consumer credits. Uh, it's, it's as simple as that. I would stay as defensive as possible. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Now, if you'd like to find out more about the scenarios as we go through them, uh, to join in or read along, or if you'd like further information about Fidelity's 2024 outlook, you can find it on your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. Pause here, find it, print it out, and then you can read along with us. So that's the base case. Let's turn now to the other scenarios our investment teams are watching. Anna, take us through the next scenario, which is for a soft landing. So what does that mean? Sounds nice. It does sound like a nice scenario. This is uh, a scenario where growth does slow a little bit, but it stays in the positive territory. It goes a little bit below trend. And inflation declines in a sustainable manner back to target. So the central bank uh, measures all the policies that they have done uh, have, w- will have worked. Um, and this is uh, a scenario where, which we would call perhaps uh, uh, immaculate disinflation. <laughs> That's a, a lovely coined phrase. Immaculate disinflation. It's, it's letting, gently letting air out of the economy. Is that, uh, is that what's going on? Yes, exactly. And in fact, uh, this is all happening in the environment where the labor market does not deteriorate much. As I said uh, earlier, the labor market remains uh, very strong across the board uh, and we expect that weakening. But in the soft landing scenario, it might weaken just a little bit, but actually still stays strong and inflation declines because uh, of that tightening working its way through, but not producing much growth damage. And the probability that you're assigning to this? 20%. And I must say that uh, perhaps on average across the board, this is the scenario that markets are pricing in today. Well, that's what I wanted to ask Steve about, because that is absolutely the the sort of the received wisdom on the street. You know, investors out with Fidelity are are banking on this. What is it um, that you think they've got wrong, Steve? So I think people are reverse engineering and backfitting the narrative to the price action. So again, one of the reasons why we haven't seen the whites of the eyes of, of recession yet is because I think it's two things, right? First of all, the uh, fiscal impulse that I was mentioning earlier, so very aggressive uh, fiscal spending, which has held up the economy pretty well. Right? When you're running such a large deficit like this, this deficit spending is, is you know, really supporting growth. So about 5.5% of nominal GDP growth this year was caused by that uh, very large uh, fiscal uh, deficit in the US. And then we had this rundown in the savings ratio as well. So, so I think people have been looking for, you know, it's like waiting for Godot, right? You've been waiting for that recession to turn up. It hasn't turned up. And therefore, people are convincing themselves, ah, okay, must be a soft landing. It's all good to go. So I think that's the reason. But I think it's wishful thinking. Hope and optimism that, uh, yeah. that puts us there. And what, what would be the best plays for fixed income uh, in a soft landing? Even though you don't think it's going to happen. I think it's very unlikely. So, I, you know, my starting point is when you've seen such aggressive monetary tightening through rapid rise in real yields, when that fiscal impulse turns negative, which it will do at the start of next year, th- you know, this is where you'll start seeing the damage being done, the, you know, the, the demand destruction. But anyway, let's go back to the soft landing. I think you know, it's a possible outcome. But I think, again, that's one where central banks just don't, you know, don't need to. In fact, if anything, you could actually see them uh, you know, putting another rate hike through. But it's, again, I, just, I don't think they need to. But this all roads lead to positioning in the front end of the curve there you can even money markets you know you, that's where 
Uh, rates are going to stay higher for longer. I think it's an okay-ish market for credit. You know, it's a it's a benign environment. So short-dated credit, sort of income funds, that's the kind of thing you want to position for. Okay, Marty in Singapore, Steve was saying that in this scenario, there might even be yet another interest rate hike. But after that, uh, they'd start cutting and uh, that would that would provide some relief for, for equities, wouldn't it? That's a, that's a good thing. Well, it, it would, and and I wouldn't want to be too tactical about it. But you know, if if we were to see a soft landing scenario in the way that Anna laid out, I, I do think in a way, you know, that is that is what is somewhat priced in. I think we're probably somewhere in between a cyclical recession and, and a soft landing scenario right now in the equity markets, but. Look, if we were to see this, and I'm with Steve, I don't think it's very likely um, because I do think earnings growth is is, is going to tick over and is going to start to come down. But we'll put that aside for a moment. But you'd want to be long growth stocks. And, and you know, that's where you're going to see the performance uh, come in because you're going to see inflation be fairly benign. You're going to see, you know, people start to feel a little bit more confident about margins. Um, and, and the growth potential in in the more you know aggressive side of the market. So, growth stocks you'd see you'd also see financials perform well. Um, you know, depending on what we we end up seeing uh, with energy prices, and, and that's obviously you know there's geopolitical impacts there. But commodities tend to do well in this type of environment. So it'd be a little bit more of what we've experienced over the last few years. Um, and I think we'd probably see some of you know, what, what's ticked over in the last few weeks in the markets kind of reverse itself if we were to see this scenario. So again, not my base case, clearly. It's why Anna had us on a uh, 20% probability, but uh, I don't know, I'd, I'd nudge even lower than that, personally. You must, you must have been a, a Boy Scout, Marty, because be prepared. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're sounding prepared there for all eventualities, which is what this is all about. We're going to pause for a moment now, though, because my colleague Nina Flitman has been speaking to Fidelity's heads of real estate and private credit to find out how their asset classes would fare over the year ahead. Both private credit and real estate have seen real structural shifts in their markets since the last economic cycle. So whatever scenario 2024 brings in for the next leg of this cycle, there are plenty of new factors to consider for each of these asset classes. Neil Cable, Head of European Real Estate Investments, and Michael Curtis, Head of Private Credit Strategies. Thank you for joining me today. Now, we have decamped from our office to what I can only describe as an empty shell of a building. Neil, why are we here? Well, we've, we've just acquired this building and it's essentially with a view to a brown to green retrofit. And this really goes to the heart of your question, Nina. Um, it's a real structural change that's going on in our market fundamentally, without wishing to get too dramatic about it, due to the existential threat the planet finds itself in. We, we've all got to contribute to a reduction in carbon emissions and buildings account for about 40% of carbon emissions. So th- this is at the heart of that global challenge. So what's driving that move to sustainability in real estate? Yeah, I think it's, it's a necessity. Um, it is an existential threat for the, for the sector, so we, we've got to do it. Um, the tenants who occupy buildings like this, they've got shareholders, stakeholders, employees who all want them to do it. And collectively, we're all signing up to versions of meeting the Paris Climate Accord. So it's just a confluence of connected events that is really forcing it upon the industry. And Michael, obviously sustainability has become a more prominent topic in private credit 
as well. Is that something that's now a must-have or is it still a nice-to-have? I think it's increasingly becoming a, a must-have, um, although I think there's, we're kind of going through that transition phase between uh, nice-to-have and must-have, if I'm honest. It's very much must-have in the public markets and if you look at where assets are flowing from, from our clients, they're very much focused on sustainability as a theme as well as driving you know, consistent, strong investment returns. And I think that's now increasingly a trend in the private markets. Neil, both investors and tenants have been willing to pay a green premium for sustainability at times when money has been cheap. How do you think a potential downturn could affect that? I don't want to sound complacent, but less than you might think. And I think that's really because underpinning that green premium is you know, the future obsolescence of buildings. So in other words, you're only really going to want to invest in the buildings that have a future in this environment where they have to effectively show um, efficient energy use and also have a, a wellness quotient for the employees who occupy the buildings or, or, or if it's residential for the individuals who occupy them. Um, and equally, in terms of the tenants, um, they're, they're actually proving, even through this difficult year with the economic backdrop we've had, much less sensitive than you might expect to paying a bit more on rent because they're saving so much on energy consumption. And of course, energy consumption costs have gone through the roof lately. Michael, looking at this building, this is remnants of the old world, but it's getting ready uh, for something new. And I think that's quite a good metaphor for the private assets in, in general. What are the changes that you've really seen in, in private credits since the last cycle? And how could they change what we're going into perhaps in 2024? What we've seen is tremendous growth of, of the private markets. And it's not just private credit, it's private equity going from a niche asset class 20 years ago to very much a mainstream asset class. And while we're still in the early stages of growth in private credit, um, we're, we're, we're now at one and a half trillion globally. In, in private credit. And that's very much similar to the market size of the high yield market or the leveraged loan market. So it's very much mainstream. And I think it gives companies uh, far more opportunities um, in terms of what financing solutions they want to take on. So in the past, you'd go to your bank manager uh, for financing. And as the capital markets develop, you'd then be able to go and borrow from banks or into the capital markets. And you know, when we think about the previous cycles, whether it be 2002 or 2007-8, um, when the capital market shut down, it limits companies' access to, to financing and capital, and particularly uh, challenges with, re with regards to refinancing. And as we move now into, towards this cycle, with the, with the emergence of private capital, now that dampens the effect when you do have cycles, because that private capital is more flexible, less rating sensitive, and it, it can provide or, or act as a shock absorber for when the capital markets or the banks aren't lending. So it's about the support of having that optionality available to you? Yes, exactly. A cyclical recession is our base case. So for private credit investors, what should they be focusing on if we turn into that scenario? Well, what we're, what we're seeing right now is, is many companies have healthy balance sheets and the cracks we've started to see emerge in the high yield market or the, uh, in particular the US leveraged loan market are very much companies that had um, cheap cost of capital during the last five years or so. And as the business models are already weak, they were able to kind of stretch out um, uh, their survival uh, because they had access to cheap capital. Now that we've gone into this rising rate environment, um, the cash flows are more constrained and those weaker companies have been unable to continue. So we've started to see that default rate increase. But if you like, uh, the, 
the um, interest coverage ratios, the leverage ratios of companies, and we, we still see growth in many of the companies, it, it remains pretty healthy. So I think what we're really concerned about is the, is the refinancing that needs to happen over the next several years. Um, and, and that refinancing um, requires companies to have the right leverage, uh, um, the right valuation backing, backing those companies, because uh, investors look for an equity cushion in support of, of the value. And I think what we're really looking at is what's going to happen to valuations in the markets over the next several years. Because what we've seen is um, uh, cost of debt go up almost by double from say 5% in the high yield markets towards 10%. And that's very healthy returns for debt investors, but equally it means cash flow and value is diverted from equity investors or from the company. And therefore, what we're expecting is multiple con contraction in the, in the corporate sector, but also valuation declines overall. So when this refinancing need comes up over the next several years, do you have the valuation to support those companies? And we're doing a lot of work in that area, including with our equity colleagues, to figure out where we want to position our portfolios uh, as, that, as that plays out over the next few years. Michael, Neil, thank you so much for braving the building site with me today. Now, do you have a question you'd like to put to one of our investment team? For our festive special this year, once more, I'll be handing the microphone over to you, our listeners. So send your questions to editorial at fil.com by Friday, the 1st of December. That's editorial at fil.com. And we'll be putting the details in the show notes. I look forward to hearing from you. Nina Flitman talking to Michael Curtis and Neil Cable a little bit earlier. Now, back on to the scenarios. We're on to number three now, and that is for a balance sheet recession. Anna, you're only giving it a 10% chance of happening, but this is the most grave scenario. So what do we mean, first of all, by a balance sheet recession? Yes, this is a scenario where uh, growth slowdown or growth contraction is deeper and more prolonged relative to the cyclical recession. Um, and this is a scenario where we see a significant wave of defaults in the corporate sector um, and also uh, perhaps uh, some vulnerabilities, some troubles among uh, weaker sovereigns. Um, so this is a, a recession that would be more similar to perhaps the global financial crisis. Uh, and at some point, uh, demand destruction is significant, inflation declines, goes back to target, and the central banks react by cutting rates uh, because of this recession, obviously to cushion that, uh, that downturn. Um, and again, we might see uh, better growth towards the end of 24, but that pretty much depends on how central banks react, whether they react in a timely manner and what kind of policies they roll out to support the economy. Okay, um, this is still make-believe. We're only giving it a 10% um, uh, likelihood of, of, of happening, but it's still enough to, to make the blood run cold if you start talking about you know, something akin to the global financial crisis. Um, Marty, what would you do um, if you saw this coming down the road towards you? Yeah, I, I guess, first of all, look, I think with with geopolitics and, and a lot of sort of tricky situations across the world, I, I actually think this this scenario is one that we should pay attention to. Yes, it's a low probability, but it's one, if it happened, it would happen quickly and fiercely. Look, in this in this scenario, I, I think you'd want to you'd want to avoid financials. Clearly, um, banks tend not to do well 
um, when we enter a balance sheet uh, recession type of scenario. Um, I, I mentioned some of the safer haven names, you know, utilities um, and, and, you know, some of those more stable names. Those are the names you'd really want to be focused on in a balance sheet recession. So you'd go to safety, you'd go to cash flow. Um, you know, so any type of recurring revenue models where you have ability to foresee cash flows with locked in contracts, um, uh, you know, somewhat conversely, you might end up seeing some software companies which have attractive valuations with longer term cash flow trajectories. Um, that might be a good place. But, you know, there's long duration assets you'd want to be quite conservative on. Um, and you need to move quickly on this because I think it would happen very, very fast if we if we moved into a balance sheet recession type scenario. So you'd have to move quickly, Steve. But um, Anna was describing there, you've got corporates defaulting, you've got some of the weaker sovereigns also getting into trouble. Where on earth can you hide? And don't say the US because they've been issuing vast amounts as well over the, uh, the past couple of years. It's, uh, it is quite difficult to hide in a balance sheet recession. Look, a balance sheet recession is, is a situation where uh, there's not sufficient uh, growth, like nominal growth to service your debt. The interest payments are you know, too prohibitive to, to, uh, to, you know, service that debt. And, and there's been many examples in the past, you know, Japan is one example of, uh, of that situation. But um, I think if there's ever a time where there could be a balance sheet recession, it's probably now. Um, and I'm, I kind of hope that it is just a 10% probability because when it does happen, you know, it's, it can be very difficult to get out of, you know, interest payments now, whether it's sovereign or corporate debt payments, uh, extremely high. So if you look in the US, for example, there, you know, up until the end of October, the US had paid a trillion dollars in, in um, interest payments alone, which is, you know, 16% of the, fe- the federal deficit, you know, and it's only going to get worse. And on the corporate side, I think there's been a lot of talk about um, how corporates have actually, their net interest payments have actually gone lower, because they had the foresight to lock in a few years ago, when rates were very low, and push out and uh, lock in at very low rates and actually park that excess cash, those precautionary cash balances in the front end in money market rates or deposits and so on. So they're actually benefiting from the situation right now. But the day of reckoning will come, right? So where there will be a maturity wall of refinancing that has to take place, and which is 25, 26. So I think, um, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a, it's a slow moving train wreck, I think whether it's on the sovereign side or the corporate side, that this could be a very, very tricky situation that you simply just don't get enough growth to service that debt. And ironically, the way out of this normally is not through monetary policy. That's how we've tried it in the past, you know, through quantitative easing and very low rates. But that kind of never kickstarts. It's like having a, a car engine, which the battery's gone. There's no point keeping, you know, trying to turn the engine because it's not going to work. What you need is fiscal. and But we're already doing fiscal in the US and elsewhere. So that's why it's hard to time this one. But I think if we do get to a, a balance sheet recession, you've got to batten down the hatches, right? You've got to, this is the time where you want to have some duration risk, you keep your credit risk to a minimum. So, and you avoid things like linkers. If, you know, this could be a time for things like, uh, you know, some hard assets as well. But my, my prescription here would be, this is, what, this is the one time where you want to push out the curve, get some duration, Keep your credit exposure. So go again up in quality to investment grade, avoid high yield. And Marty was talking about uh, moving quickly in this sort of situation. I, I asked you already what, what would be the indicators that would um, tell you these, these would be the red flags saying this is it, everyone. And then what happens on the fixed income floor 
uh, when you, you, your, your red flags have been raised and the, the alarms are going off? Does it sort of turn into a war room? How do you react to make sure that everybody is aware and is acting? Yeah, so we go through all these scenarios. You know, every day, every week, we, when we speak to the portfolio managers, we're all trying to figure out what, what is the scenario we're in right now. And I think we're still in the soft landing camp. So we, you know, we have got some duration risk, but it's mostly in, you know, with position in the front end and the rest of it. But I think, you know, there will be a day where we say, you know, things more sinister things might happen when that fiscal impulse turns negative, when the excess savings run out. And I think that's where time where we say collectively, right, we need to start adding duration here. We need to start being preemptive and cutting that credit exposure because it will be a one-way street. The liquidity will become very impaired. So we are, you know, we're, we're kind of wargaming, as it were, already about this. And, that, and I think that's our natural predisposition in fixed income is always to worry about the what-ifs. And, and, and whilst it's a, just a 10% probability, I think we're, we're, we're going through the scenarios where what happens if it's a, 20 30 percent probability already you do sound like you've thought this through <laughs> oh yeah every <laughs> single day okay well let's um let's turn away from uh, frankly a very worrying possibility uh, to something that um, is a bit more positive and that's about sustainability in the coming years so what should investors be watching well a little bit earlier i ventured down to the river thames not far from fidelity's offices with the company's chief sustainability officer jen hui tan to get his thoughts This was once declared biologically dead. The River Thames, as you can just about hear lapping behind me as it flows through the city of London, is now home to more than 100 species of fish. An example of habitat restoration running right through the centre of a capital city. Now, Jen Hui, I've brought you here because climate has long been a focus for investors, but nature loss, like the Thames when it was so polluted that nothing could live in it, is now becoming just as important. So what's, what's going on? What's behind that shift? So there's actually a lot of similarities between climate and nature, not least of which that nature loss caused by human activity is accelerating and is now at unprecedented levels. Since 1970, we've lost about 70% of global wildlife species. And today, about 1 million species face the risk of extinction, which is something in the order of 100 to 1,000 times greater than the natural rate of extinction. Now, you've thrown a lot of numbers at us uh, then, all of them very impressive and very important. But actually, data is one of the challenges when it comes to measuring nature as opposed to measuring climate change. Fidelity has been involved in bioacoustics, which is a, an, an emerging uh, science, and, and we've, we've reported on that. Um, but what are the other ways of filling this data gap? There are a lot of challenges, I think, when it comes to collecting data around, around nature. One main challenge is that it's location specific. So cutting down a tree in one part of the world is not the same nature impact as cutting it down in another part of the world. And so we need to be able to recognize that and adapt the data that we have to reflect those differences. The second is that there's no really true North Star for uh, for, for nature loss. With, uh, with, with climate, we have carbon emissions and we're all very clear how we calculate that. The challenge with nature is that we have a lot of different impacts, a lot of different dependencies, and no clear consensus around how any of that is to be measured. Are you hopeful that consensus will be reached? So we have seen some progress. The Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, the TNFD, which is designed to sound deliberately like the TCFD <laughs> equivalent, that is evolving a set of standards around uh, nature-based disclosures 
exposure of financial risks that will provide a framework for investors to understand a company's impacts and dependencies. At the same time, we have the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which will shortly come into force requiring all companies based in the EU to report on a range of sustainability KPIs, including that of nature. So uh, this is the evolving alphabet soup around sustainability. That doesn't seem to be, um, to be ending. Um, what, what, do you th- what do you think are the main regulatory um, challenges for companies, both on the investment side and um, investors of, the, um, uh, of, of where people choose to put their money? So I think there's no doubt that nature loss is rapidly becoming a key focus area for regulators. And we saw that at COP15 in Kunming and Montreal with the creation of the Global Biodiversity Framework. One immediate piece of regulation is going to be the EU's uh, new law on deforestation-free commodities that will come into effect at the end of 2024 that will ban imports of certain products that are deemed to have a high level of uh, deforestation risk associated with them. And the UK and the US is working on equivalent pieces of legislation. So pretty soon, companies are going to need to understand how deforestation risk plays into their supply chains. But more broadly, there's a whole raft of new regulation coming up, including the TNFD that we spoke of, that companies will need to get on top of if they're starting to measure their nature-related impacts and dependencies. Now, you have a team of sustainability specialists who work alongside the analyst team um, in Fidelity, Fixed Income and uh, and Equities. Um, And the engagement that they have with companies is absolutely at the the core of, of how Fidelity invests. How is that developing? So that, like with all these things, is a work in progress. I think we've made good progress around integrating engagement as being a core discipline of the investment process. I think what we need to get to now is tracking of the outcomes of these engagements. So not simply quantifying the level of activity, but quantifying what we're able to achieve. And actually, part of what we're able to achieve is very much defined by the system in which we operate. And so for us, it's very important to engage with policymakers and regulators to promote a healthier system in which nature-based risks and opportunities can be uh, taken into account of and best uh, taken advantage of. Jenhui Tan speaking to me earlier from a very busy Thames riverside. Now, finally, no landing, Anna. No recession at all. Things just carry on as merrily as they have been doing. Um, Again, we're only giving this a 10% uh, probability, but briefly, how would that play out? Yes, that's a scenario where growth uh, remains resilient, particularly in the US. Uh, in Europe, we are seeing a slowdown, and in this scenario, Europe would start picking up uh, and accelerating. Uh, but crucially, inflation would also stay sticky at high levels, uh, and uh, this scenario is not as uh, nice potentially as it sounds because with the uh, sticky inflation rates will be higher for longer, not just high for longer, but higher for longer. So in that scenario, we would expect central banks uh, to, to hike even more. Um, and then it might have a more damaging effect on growth towards the end of the year. So in the short to medium term, we might have stable growth, a bit higher inflation, uh, but ultimately that damage might catch up and we might end up still in the cyclical if not in the balance sheet recession later ah, in the year. So it's, it's kind of like a, a sugar high that could be followed by a crash. In a sense, it can evolve into any scenario, any other scenario from there. Uh, but with growth being so resilient and inflation high, we would need to see more tightening. Uh, and then from there, it depends on 
whether you believe that the transmission mechanism is still alive and well, and, and we do believe that. So um, even more uncertainty then um, in this scenario, you'd, you'd see this um, reality suspended um, for a little bit further, um, but then, Steve, back to doom and gloom, it could all go a little bit, um, a little bit awry. Yeah, well, I think uh, the no landing scenario, I think wishful thinking. I mean, it's again, I go back to, you know, you, this is what we need. We, we have excess in, in the economy. We have very light, large debt burdens, right? So, and we have, you know, this, we're coming out of a COVID uh, boom where, you know, co the huge amounts of savings were, have now been spent, you know, so it's caused an inflation impulse, right? So we need to cleanse the system. And, and the no, it, it's very difficult to see a, the, the no landing scenario because, again, the demand destruction has taken place, which has been masked by the fiscal impulse, it will rear its head at some point. But anyway, let's go through the motions and assume there is a, a no landing scenario. For me, this is a time where I think you've really got a position in the front end because, you know, you, it's T bills, it's being very defensive. I think it's a very benign environment uh, for credit. Uh, you need that growth for credit spreads to perform. So it's high yield that will perform kind of well. And that has an, a low empirical duration as well. So they would buy my two picks. And by the way, I'd be buying gold in vast quantities as well and hard assets in that, that soft landing scenario. Right, it sounded like you were going to be buying the, the, the other assets with your fingers crossed. But um, uh, so gold and, um, and Marty, how about you? Yeah, like uh, it, it's, it's an interesting one because this, this scenario is rather tricky for equities. And, and you think, okay, great, you know, growth is, is resuming, um, you know, full risk on mode. But it's not really going to be that way because I think, you know, partly what the market is starting to look for is, uh, and we've talked about this quite a bit already, is, you know, with rates coming down, that should be reasonably positive and constructive for equities. But if rates remain high, some of that is going to be, some of that air that's sort of in the system will, will remain there and it, it won't be able to be let out. And so, you know, I think you could see some weakness in across equities if, if the expectations are that rates aren't going to come down. But, you know, like Steve said on hard assets, I think the way you'd want to be positioned, and again, I'm with him on this, I think that the probability is, is fairly low, but you'd want to be down, you know, sort of hard assets. You'd think about commodities. Um, you'd think about sectors where there's real pricing power. You, you might go towards consumer, uh, consumer discretionary. You'd probably, you know, avoid the, the more um, sort of stable names in the sector. So I think, again, wishful thinking. But uh, you'd probably go down that hard asset place and, and but, you know, look out, it wouldn't be that easy of a, of a situation to navigate in equities. Thank you. Now, we focus mainly on global markets so far uh, today. But Anna, the team has also produced three scenarios specifically for China for next year, because it's such a, a different stage um, in the cycle. They are controlled stabilization where recovery gradually accelerates as the property sector stabilizes and consumption picks up. That's the base case. You've given that a 65% probability rating. Um, a serious slowdown, you've given that a 25% chance. The economy takes a double hit, both from domestic problems and an external demand slowdown. And then finally, reflation. This is back to this wishful thinking, perhaps. You only think that's 10% uh, likely to happen. Um, why the controlled stabilization as your base case in, in China? Well, first of all, China is uh, in, in a cycle of its own. It's been doing very different things uh, this year versus expectations, but also the government is, is trying to manage different objectives. It, it's a structural slowdown, uh, deleveraging uh, on the one hand, uh, and uh, 
providing some cyclical support to the economy or on the other hand. Um, and we think this is something that will continue. We have seen a number of various easing policies uh, rolled out. They are targeted. Uh, it's not going to be a big, big bang stimulus, which would be um, which would be consistent with the reflationary scenario. Uh, it, it's more about targeted measures, uh, mostly aimed at supporting and stabilizing the property sector because it, it's at this at the very core of the economy, linked to everything, but, but particularly consumption. Uh, and as the government is trying to boost consumption, uh, it, it's all about stabilizing the property sector. So we think it's going to be consistent with what they have been trying to do this year. Uh, and we think that they are going to, to aim to hit their growth target, which is going to be somewhere between 4 and 5%. Um, that's why we think it, it's, it's likely to be the base case. So a very controlled economy, as we know, and um, they're, they're aiming to stabilize, not, not, not to overheat. Now, Marcy, you're making a guest appearance on Rich Pickings. You're normally uh, presenting the Investor's Guide to China. So um, presumably, you know, given this very different stage in the cycle, a different way of managing that economy, um, China presents a diversification possibility for, uh, for investors, doesn't it? It does. And I think Anna's exactly right. It, you know, the Chinese government is looking to stabilize, um, not looking to revitalize the property sector. And in fact, recent statistics that have come out have started to show that the initiatives that the government's taking to, to sort of de-emphasize the property sector as a proportion of growth to the overall economy are starting to take hold. And if we look back over the last uh, number of years or so, properties generated any between, anywhere between, say, 30 and 40 percent of overall growth to the Chinese economy. We've started to see that tick down a little bit, and that's exactly what the government is trying to do. So some of the initiatives are, are, are having the effect that, that it wants to have. I don't think um, we should look for any kind of bazooka, any kind of big um, you know, monetary or, or fiscal support coming out of the government. I think we should look for drip feed um, you know, initiatives that are targeted, as Anna said, that will have you know, the desired impact. But the fact remains, uh, and we, we remain relatively positive on China as an investment opportunity, mostly because it's cheap. And there are some very attractive stocks with good cash flow, uh, good cash flow growth potential. Um, at, at attractive valuations. And so, you know, I think it deserves a place in portfolios. Uh, but I think you have to be a little bit patient because some of the initiatives will take a little bit of time to show up. Thank you, Marcia. I mean, it's true, isn't it, Steve, that the authorities in China have got, um, have, have already used a wide array of different tools to try and tweak um, the economy there to, uh, to, to achieve the stabilization that Anna's talking about. Um, when, when you look to Asia, because we, we, we've spoken a lot about Western economies, but when you look to Asia, um, uh, what is catching your eye? It could be in China, it could be um, looking at the region uh, entirely. And Marty's talk, talked a lot about Japan already. Yeah, uh, well, let's start with China. So I, I kind of, I take a, a little bit more of a concerned view on China. I think maybe that's my predisposition in, fix, in fixed income. But you know, they've just gone through a property bust. Right? We've seen this this um, this happen before in places like Japan and so on. So and and they're experiencing deflation. And when you get into that situation, that this there's you know the the resolution is going to take a long time, and they're trying to balance not you know do it not re um, 
you know, reflating the economy through total social financing, you know, in other words, building up leverage, the off-balance sheet stuff and so on. And at the same time, you know, the fiscal policy is still a lever they could use, but the, the LGFVs, the local authorities, are, you know, maxed out as well. So the, I just think there's limited levers which they can pull right now without some destabilizing things even more. And that's why it concerns me somewhat. And once you get into deflation, it's sometimes very hard to get out of. So I think this is a kind of, this is a worrying thing for me. And I think everyone looks at China and thinks, well, surely they've done it before. They just, they can just, you know, reflate themselves out of this. They cut, they cut overnight rates. They cut, they, the, um, R, they cut the RRPs, you know, the reverse, uh, the, um, the policy rates. And, and they just stimulate fiscal policy again. And I just think this time could this be... This time's a, different. Well, it could be, I think it's, it's probably more difficult for them to get out of. And I think the other thing as well, which I'm looking at, is obviously what's happening in Japan, right? So BOJ policy. So what we know is that they, they're gonna, they need to come out of the negative interest rate policy. And they said they're going to do so uh, at the start of next year. And same with the yield curve control as well. So it'd be interesting to see what happens there. I think, um, you know, for what it's worth, I think that the, the outlet valve here is dollar yen. I think... Uh, they they need to hike rates pretty aggressively, right? They're so far in a you know uh, away from where other central banks have have been and have gone. Um, so I think the outlet valve could be a could be a weaker yen here. JGBs would probably have to be capped, but a weaker yen. Thank you. And finally, Anna, um, a bright spot in Asia, if not China. From a macroeconomic perspective, uh, I would say both India and Indonesia have proved to be much more resilient domestically and externally in response to much tighter global financial conditions um, than this year than uh, before. If we go back to 2013 and the taper tantrum, these were uh, some of the fragile economies. Both India and Indonesia were in the fragile five group. Uh, they were very vulnerable at the time, now have demonstrated a lot of resilience and growth has been driven by domestic demand. So I would say these are the bright spots for the time being. Now we're almost at the finish line, but just before we go, there's still time for the Rich Pickings Parlour game, hot cakes and hot potatoes. But this month, as it's our Outlook edition, we're going to do things slightly differently. I'd like you all to come up with one thing, and cash isn't allowed, that you think could weather all the storms or scenarios that we've talked about today. That's your hot cake. And one thing that wouldn't, and that's your hot potato. That's what you drop. So, Steve, let me come to you first of all. Your hot cake for all seasons. Hmm. So I think my, yeah, I think it would have to be, again, you don't need to push out the curve to get uh, decent income these days, right? So I would be, to, to weather all different scenarios, I would say keep it simple, short-dated credit, something which gives you income um, and, and just harbor yourself there. Um, I think the other, my other uh, hot cake would be, for all, all scenarios, I think would be things like hard assets. I think the ratio of financial prices to hard assets is at the highest levels ever been. So, you know, I'm talking about commodities, anything which is at the scarcity of supply and so on. And your hot potato? Yeah, I think a hot potato, I, I'm, again, I'm kind of concerned about some uh, Asian currency weakness here. The outlet valve, that's, that's kind of my phrase. And I think dollar China, so China's remnant B, I think, could, could be weaker, but also uh, the yen as well. So my hot potato is, is uh, those two currencies. So dollar higher, those currencies weaker. Marty, how about you? Your hot cake, first of all. 
Anna touched on uh, you know some emerging markets and, and Asia a little bit towards the end. I, I think one thing that could really weather the storm across lots of different scenarios. Now, uh, you know, not all scenarios, because if we end up in in a pretty severe recession, I think you know it's it's look out below for for equities. But the, but India is a market that I think you have really good secular growth. Um, you know, a long-term outlook with with some very good trends in the market. And so I think if there were a place that I would want to go um, and really look for any kind of weakness in the market to continue adding, it would be India. I would focus on large cap. Small cap has had a really good run. Um, what about your hot potato? What are you going to be steering clear of for the coming year? I mean, I'm kind of with Steve on this one. I think a hot potato is really tough, uh, and I'm probably not going to be so unique here. I, I do think you'd look for where valuations are pretty stretched. And, you know, you might think I'm about to say U.S., but but it's not really stretched because it's ticked over a little bit. I do think some of the currencies um, where you've seen you've seen some, you know, reasonably good strength in that, you know, particularly in Asia, where you could see some risk there. So I'm kind of with Steve, maybe a basket of, of Asian currencies might be the place to uh, to avoid. Okay, and finally, Anna, um, what about your hot cake? What tin hat would you be wearing um, through all scenarios? Yeah, I do think it's quite difficult to pick one that would uh, do well across all the scenarios, particularly in the balance sheet recession. But I would say inflation-linked bonds would be my pick because we do believe inflation is quite sticky. Um, uh, so in some scenarios, we might see more inflation. Uh, but if we do enter slowdown, whether it's moderate or whether it's more significant, uh, they would, uh, these assets would benefit from a, a drop in real yields. So so I think that that is probably quite um, uh, quite a good hot cake uh, across the board. And your hot potato? Japanese government bonds. I know this trade has been uh, tried before many times, <laughs> uh, but we do think that um, uh, the BOJ is going to start normalizing policy uh, through uh, 2024, and uh, the payoff seems to be quite asymmetric there. So maybe this time is different. Anna, that's a perfect line to end on. Thank you very much to you. Thank you also to Steve and Marty and to Jenhui Tan, Michael Curtis, Neil Cable and my colleague in editorial, Nina Flitman. You can read Fidelity's 2024 outlook in full on your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. Don't forget to send us your questions to put to our investment team for our special next month. The producer today was Holly Eastman with production support from Connor Bailey, Alex Wilcox, Callum Blitz and Steve Gardner. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.